All right, Ephesians 4, verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes these words, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But in each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says... When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a perfect man in the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So I want to talk to you today about getting real. A time to get real. And I want to talk to you about this as we leave one year and as we come into another year. You know, it's always a time of reflection. Uh, You know, people, this is a time of year where you're going to make your New Year's resolutions and all that. If you believe in that, I personally don't because it's kind of a waste of time because most people get all excited and, you know, they run hard for a few weeks and then just all kind of falls by the wayside. What God calls us to is not a sprint, but a marathon. We're long-distance runners. We're not sprinters. And so we need to prepare ourselves to run the race faithfully, to start the race and to finish the race. Now, thankfully, it's the grace of God that enables us to run and to finish our race. But that doesn't take away the responsibility we have to run our race. We couldn't run our race, we couldn't finish our race from the, apart from the grace of God, but God expects us to run our race. He expects us to finish our race. And he promises that if we are his children, we will not only run our race, but we will finish it. And so this is a time where we often reflect on things. And I think we should live our lives in such a way that we don't just reflect on things at the end of a year or the beginning of another one, but we should live and we should be people that consider or reflect on things all the time. Paul tells us in his letter to the Philippians, he says, meditate on these things. And he says, whatever things are good or true or praiseworthy, Meditate on these things. It's very general. It's specific in that there are certain types of things we should meditate on. There's other types of things he's, he's saying that we shouldn't meditate on. But within the context of those things that are true and good and praiseworthy, I mean, it can be all kinds of things, right? 
And so we should be people that think. We should be people that reason. We should be people that don't just walk through life blindly, but we should walk through life with our eyes wide open. We should look at things and we should think about things. We should consider things. We should ask questions. We should wonder. We should live with wonder in every sense of the word. And so when I think about the church, and I think about the church a lot, it's what pastors do. They think about churches. And they, in particular, think about the church they pastor. So I think a lot about Christ Fellowship. But I don't just think about Christ Fellowship because Christ Fellowship is just a part of a greater whole. And it's true that what affects the greater whole affects Christ Fellowship. And what is affecting Christ Fellowship is affecting the greater whole. So sometimes we might think that our lives don't matter much, that our lives don't have much impact, don't make much difference. And it's true, I doubt that any, if many of us will ever have our names written in a history book, and that's okay. If you stop and you think about it, the vast majority of people that will ever live on planet earth, the very vast majority will be unknown, nameless, faceless people. You'll never know them. I'll never know them. They'll only be known to God and a few people in their sphere of influence. But you know what? That's okay. That doesn't mean that those nameless, faceless people have no impact on the greater whole because they do. So you can't think that you don't have an impact on the greater whole because you do. You might not see how you impact it. You might not know how you impact it. But I promise you that you do because God put you on this earth. Because God created you. Because God, the author, made you part of his story. And he didn't do that for no reason. He did that on purpose. So that's how I know your life matters. That's how I know your life will make a difference somehow, some way, small or great. It doesn't matter. You're not the one that necessarily determines that. God is the one who has already determined that. And so when I think about the church, and I think about what's happening in the church, I think about all the things that all the things that you might be able to read about and and you know there was a lot about the church that we saw in this year a lot the church was in the news a lot if you didn't notice that the church was in the news a lot because our nation made decisions that diametrically opposed the scripture and good men and good women stood up and opposed some of those things. So it made the news. So in very direct ways and very indirect ways, whether we realized it or not, the church was in the news a lot. And even when the church isn't in the news, here's something we should understand. The church is always making news. The church is always making news because what we do as the church directly impacts our culture. So the way that a Supreme Court can make a decision and call same-sex marriage good when the Bible calls it evil is because the church somehow left this undone. The church somehow came to a place where they said, what's in this book doesn't matter. Now they might not have done that publicly. They might not have done that in a way for everyone to know. But it started in places just like Taylor, Texas, just like Christ Fellowship, when pastors just like myself got up and began to teach that what the Bible says has changed. What the Bible says doesn't matter. What God really meant to say is this, not what you think he meant to say, which is exactly what the devil said to Eve in the beginning. 
What God really meant to say, what God really said was this, not what you think he said. Go back to Genesis and read. That's exactly what the enemy did with Eve in the beginning. It's what the enemy continues to do today. And we still give place to and listen to and believe the lie. And so this crisis, I believe there's a crisis in the church. And it's a fundamental lack of knowledge concerning who God is. See, we can't come to conclusions like we've come to if we know who God is. If we believe that God is who the Bible declares him to be, then we can't just take his word and say, well, let's open up here to page, uh, let's see, let's go to page 349. That that part in that verse, we can just take that out. That's not relevant anymore. Uh, flip over here to page uh, 784. Take those verses out in chapter 11 because they don't matter anymore. See, if we really understand who God is, we can't do that. Now, let me bring it down to your life and my life. Because it's easy to throw rocks at those people that we don't know their names and they sit somewhere up in some building or some position. And we just say, they did this. Well, who are they? Well, I don't know, but they did it. Let's bring it to our own lives. What happens in our own lives when we don't know who God truly is as he is revealed to us in the scripture? Well, what happens in our own life when we don't know who God really is? When we don't understand who God really is, we begin to make decisions. We begin to make choices. We begin to live in certain ways and act in certain ways and talk in certain ways and do certain things that are contrary to the very character and nature of God. And we justify our actions and we justify our lifestyle because everything around us tells us that we can. I mean, I was born a man, but if I want to be a woman, I can just be a woman. If that's how I identify, then I can, I have the right to do that. If, if I want to destroy my marriage I can do that because I have the right to be happy. I've had people come to me and tell me that Christians come to me and tell me those things. I have a right to be happy. I can divorce my husband. I can divorce my wife if I want to because I have a right to be happy. And God wants me to be happy. I can take whatever drug, drink whatever drink. I can live whatever lifestyle. I can do what I want because I have a right to be happy. And God wants me to be happy. So we begin to justify things because we redefine who God is. Now, who is God? Now, God's not holy, holy, holy. God is all about my fun, fun, fun. God's about my happiness. God exists for my happiness. That's who God is, right? I mean, God's in heaven and he created me to be happy. Therefore, he's the master of my happiness. Therefore, what I what makes me happy, God must approve of. Right? No. I've just redefined God. I've just I've just totally misunderstood who God is. So do you see where I'm going with this? This lack of knowledge is producing all sorts of dysfunction and disparity and disunity, not only in our personal lives and in our families and in our culture, but in the church. If we don't know who God is, if we don't have the proper knowledge and understanding of who God is, if we don't allow the scripture to define who God is, then we will define him on our own terms and we will live our lives accordingly. This is what Jesus called it in Matthew chapter 24. He called it everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. When we don't truly understand who God is as revealed to us in the scripture, we become a people who do what is right in our own eyes. And the Bible calls that sin. It is this crisis of not knowing who God is as revealed in us to the scripture that has led 
many in the church to adopt blatantly anti-scriptural positions on all sorts of social and personal issues. It's also produced schisms, divisions within the body of Christ over issues that we should never divide over. We don't have to agree on everything. There's some things we absolutely have to agree on for us to call ourselves Christian. There's other things that we have the liberty to disagree on. But there are some things that God doesn't give us the liberty to divide over because that division tarnishes his glory. When we fail to properly understand who God is as defined in the scripture, this is what begins to happen. So we've become a culture of Christians that pick and choose what we will believe or what we will ignore based on how it affects us personally. We make decisions not rooted and grounded in the truth, but in myth and emotion. How many of you, and you could probably think of all sorts of examples... But have you ever been in a position where something is so emotional, so emotionally charged, and it just seems like this is the way it should be, and you feel that because everything around you is telling you that's how you should feel, and you get caught up in your emotions, and then someone comes and says, but wait a minute, this is what the Bible says. And then you have people say things like this. Yeah, but you know what? That was written so long ago, it doesn't apply today. Back then, that might have been true, but that's not true today. Because we live in a different day and a different time. And what was true back then, what what seemed right back then, it just doesn't seem right now. So now we're making judgments on what seems right. See the danger in that? It feels right. It seems right. Everybody else seems to think it's okay. What's the big deal? I mean, if everybody else thinks it's okay, then I feel kind of awkward being the only one that doesn't think this is okay. So what do we do? We join the crowd and we go along. I mean, it's a whole lot better when you fall off the cliff with everybody else than just falling off the cliff by yourself, right? No, it's still not good. And so we make decisions not rooted and grounded in truth, but in myth and emotion. And this way we willfully deceive ourselves in our own, for our own convenience or for our own misguided belief. So we're all called to submit our beliefs, our opinions. Indeed, the Bible says that we are to submit our very life to Christ and to the Scripture. What's the implication there? Let's just go back and let's think about Jesus. Here is Jesus... And we see Jesus with huge crowds following him. And it seems like the whole nation has fallen in love with him. And then we see Jesus standing trial in a courtyard of people filled with people who are crying, crucify him, crucify him. Now, certainly, not everyone who ever followed Jesus left Jesus. But I think it's fair to say that there were a whole lot of people who probably at one time followed Jesus, who turned from Jesus. John 6 even tells us this. When Jesus stands there after doing the the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, and he's standing there, he says, I am the bread of life come down from heaven. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And the people just gasp in, in horror. What, what is he saying? They're asking among themselves, what, what, what did he just say? 
How can this be? This is an abomination. This went against everything that God had taught the Jews throughout Scripture. And here is Jesus, the Messiah. Here's this rabbi standing in front of thousands of people. And he says one of the most controversial, he said the worst thing he could possibly say. I mean, this just guaranteed that he was going to lose thousands of people that day. When he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And it says, from that day, many turned from following him and and they followed him no more. Why would Jesus say that? You know why he said it? Because it was true. (laughs) He said it because it was true. He said it because Jesus knew that we would have a little table in our little church with a little wafer and a little cup of juice and we would come to that table every week and we would eat his flesh and drink his blood. He knew so that we would have a place, a way to remember him, to remind us so that we would never lose sight of, that we would never not be able to discern the body of Christ. And he stood in front of that multitude and he said something that was so offensive to so many people that they would not follow him any longer. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. He didn't say it to be controversial. He didn't say it to make people not follow him. He said it because it was true. And when he said it, knowing it was true, he also knew that many would turn from following him that day. But he still said it anyway. And he didn't try to change the wording where he was saying the truth, but it didn't really sound like the truth. Kind of like what we like to do today. We like to tell people the truth, but we try to reword it in a way where, eh, just, you know, the truth is just too hard. We can't really tell them the truth. Well, I know we got to tell them the truth, but you know, there's got to be a way we can tell people the truth where it doesn't really sound like the truth, so it doesn't offend them, but it's still the truth. How come Jesus never did that? How come Jesus just told people the truth? You know why Jesus did that? He tells us in John chapter 8. He said, because you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. In other words, if I try to make the truth not sound like the truth to make it easier for you, you might miss the truth. And if you miss the truth, you're going to miss your freedom. But if I just go up and straight up tell you the truth in love, because I love you, even if it does offend you, even in the offense, you can still be set free. Jesus loved truth so much that he made sure that he never miscommunicated it. That even if it hit them square in the head and knocked them out, at least they would wake up free, not still in bondage. So we're all called to submit our beliefs, our opinions, our lives to Christ and to the scripture. That is to the truth. We're commanded to be contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But here's the deal, church. We'll not contend for something that we ourselves are not committed to. And we will not commit to the faith if we do not understand how vitally important it is to each of us individually and to the body of Christ as a whole. The faith, the faith as described in the Bible And the Bible is the place where the faith is to be found. Period. And if whatever else we're we're dealing with, if it doesn't line up with the faith as described in the Bible, then it's not the faith. It's something different. It's a lie. The Bible is very specific about where we are to be headed. 
the direction God has set for us in his word is so clear that we must willfully ignore it or deny it in order to miss it. So here in Ephesians chapter 4, we see that Christ gave gifts to men for a specific purpose. And he describes those gifts in chapter, in a verse 11. He said, he himself, meaning Christ himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. There's actually not five gifts there, there's only four. It's apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers are really one. So pastors should be teachers. Now, can someone have the gift of teaching? Yes, not all teachers are pastors. But if you're a pastor, you are called to be a teacher. Pastors and teachers. So I'm going to deal specifically with that because that's what I am. I'm a pastor. And I'm a teacher. And pastors and teachers, along with those other ministry gifts, were given to the church for a very specific purpose. And that purpose is defined in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. Let's read it together. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And he himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, comma, for the building up of the body of Christ. Specifically, the the task of a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That is the work of Christian service, which is the work of making disciples of Christ through ordinary means. This is where I want to kind of hone in on. Through ordinary means. When I say it's time to get real, it's time for us to understand that God uses ordinary things to do his work. We've all heard these testimonies. We've all read these books where these people have these unbelievable testimonies of how they got saved and you know they were drug kingpins and they were mob hit men and and then one day God just you know came out from the back alley and hit them over the head with a two by four and appeared to them in person and told them all this stuff and then you know then they go and they write a book and 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 you go away if you read that book it's like man I wish I could have a testimony like that no you really don't what's wrong with being ordinary What's wrong with living an ordinary life? Now, don't get me wrong. An ordinary life, don't, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. Because you know what an ordinary life is filled with? An ordinary life is filled with the good. It's also filled with the bad. An ordinary life is filled with the beautiful, but it's also filled with the ugly. The good, the bad, and the ugly of life is pretty ordinary because ordinary life is filled with all of those things. And God uses all of those things. God uses the most common, the most mundane, the most obscure things you could imagine to do a transforming work in and through your life. He, he's so good at it that he's been doing it in your life and in my life for years and we didn't even know it. It's just that when God allows us to experience these these big speed bumps or these these big potholes and we or we fall into the ditch or we fall into the hole and and then we suddenly realize, "Oh man, what's happened to me? I'm in this situation and how am I getting then we finally God, we cry out to God as if God's like you know, we think God's just been somewhere doing something else with somebody else. And we've just been living our life, you know, and who knows where God is. I'm living my life. But then when I fall in the hole and I can't get out, then I want God to be there for me. Here's the reality, church. God's always been there for you. God's been working day in and day out, moment by moment, 
hour by hour, day by day, since before you were born. Otherwise, how did you get here? How did you get here? How did I get here? How did we come to be? It's because God was working before you were. And God knew you. And he was working on your behalf before you were ever a thought in anyone's mind. That is ama- That should amaze you. It really should amaze you. It should also encourage you to know that wherever you are and whatever you're dealing with is not caught God by surprise. He didn't come back to you because he never left you. You may have turned from him, you may have walked from him, but he never left you. He never turned from you. He didn't come back to you. He's always been there and he will always be there doing what he's always done, working his purpose for his glory in all things. So God gave these gifts to the church. He gave pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. This is the task that a pastor is called to, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To make disciples. And this work of ministry that every saint is called to is for the building up of the body of Christ. In short, every believer, every saint of God is called to be a bodybuilder. You come here to worship God. You come here to considering one another, to provoke one another, to love and good works, the Bible says. That's what Hebrews chapter 10 teaches us. And what's the point of considering one another and provoking one another to love and good works so that we are all building up the body of Christ? What's the point of listening to the preaching and the teaching of the gospel week in and week out? Hopefully it's not just on Sunday morning that you get the gospel, but in your Bible reading and your Bible meditation and your praying and your listening and your reading other things. The gospel is what is transforming you. It's the power of God unto salvation. It's the Holy Spirit inside of you that is taking that gospel truth and bringing about a transformation. This is what pastors are called to do, to preach and to teach the gospel in very ordinary ways so that God, through very ordinary means, does what he does. You guys ever watch a child grow up? Takes a while. If you want to watch a child grow up, you need to be prepared to spend some time because it takes some time. It's going to require some patience. If you think it takes a long time for water to boil when you're watching the tea kettle, try watching a child grow up. I hadn't seen anything happen. I've been here for eight hours and he looks exactly the same. But how does God grow up a child? Very ordinary. God uses very ordinary means. I mean, he uses things like macaroni and cheese and mashed potatoes and eggs and milk and love and discipline, skint knees, bedtime stories. Late Saturday mornings, early Monday mornings, middle of the night, middle of the afternoon. Blow chunks in the van, coming home from watching Christmas lights. He, he uses all of that. Not only to grow up our children, but, but to continue growing up the parents of those children. Things that are so ordinary, we don't even attribute them to God. Things that are so common that we don't even associate them with spiritual things. Yet, there can be no disassociation between the ordinary and the spiritual. Because the spiritual is very ordinary. While at the very same time, it's very extraordinary. Kind of like God. He's both. 
Through the preaching and the teaching of the gospel, you are to be equipped for the work of ministry to this end. The building up of the body of Christ. This is to be continuous until, here's what Paul says, look at verse 12. Verse 13. Until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So this equipping for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body, is to continue until the unity of the faith, until the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God comes about. Until the body of Christ comes to a perfect, a complete man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And what does the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God look like? What does that look like? It looks like a man that has come to maturity. It looks like a man that is fully mature. Not just any man, but Paul says, a man that has come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. See, not just any man could have died for our sins. Only Christ could have died for our sins. We're not growing up into the fullness of maturity in the stature or the measure of just any man. But we are called to grow up to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. When I said God has a very specific direction that he has us headed in, that is the direction that we are to be conformed to the image of the son of God. And how is God conforming you right now, Christian, to the image of the son of God? He's using very ordinary means. Through your circumstances and through your situation, whatever it may be, good, bad, or ugly, he's causing you to have to exercise things like patience. He's causing you to have to deal with the reality or the lack thereof of your spiritual fruit, the fruit of his spirit. He puts you in situations where gentleness is called for. He puts you in situations where long-suffering is called for. He puts you in disturbing situations and he tells you, peace, be still. He's using ordinary means to transform you, to grow you up and to bring you to maturity so that you look like Jesus. This is the reality of the gospel. This is this is what Sunday morning is about. We don't worship God in a vacuum. We don't just worship God and then there's nothing else connected with that. Our worship of God is connected to everything. It's connected to your darkest hour. It's connected to your highest mountain. It's connected to everything. Because you worship God, not just for two hours on a Sunday morning, certainly not just for 20 or 30 minutes while we sing songs. Your life is worship before God. What does your worship look like? What does your worship sound like? Through that worship, what is God doing in your life? What is he bringing you to? And the Bible says he's got a very specific place he's bringing you to. He's bringing you to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Christ is the measure of fullness that we conform to. This is who and what we are being built up into by the power of the Holy Spirit through the power of the gospel. We are growing up in all things into Christ. We are full in Christ. Do you hear me, church? We are full in Christ. But the fullness of Christ is not yet fully seen and fully known in us. If Christ is in you and you are in Christ, 
you are full in him. The problem is he is not yet fully seen or fully known in you. So when we have those outbursts of wrath, when we let our impatience get the best of us, when we do things and act in ways and say things that are contrary to Christ, it's just proof that Christ has not yet been fully seen and fully known in us. Yet if we are in Christ, we are full in him. This is the work of sanctification. This is the work of transformation that God is doing. That he is growing us up. You look at a child and you say, that is the son of this man. But he's not fully grown yet. He's not mature yet. We are children of God, but we have not been grown up fully into him yet, though we are fully in him. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is the role of the pastor and the teacher to equip you to come and to bring others to that fullness of Christ. The pastor can equip you, but only the Holy Spirit can bring the increase to maturity and fullness. You must Choose to be equipped and you must choose to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. We come to that fullness as we walk worthy of the calling. This was Paul's admonition in Ephesians 4.1. He writes this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. That is, to walk as Christ walked. To walk with all lowliness and gentleness, to walk with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, to walk endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are called to know and so walk in this truth that there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Do you notice the common theme there? One. Paul says, Christ gave gifts to the church to equip them for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. The unity of the faith and the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. One faith, one Lord. One Lord. That we would have one faith and our knowledge would come together as one in him. Christ uses ordinary means to achieve his purpose. So we live in a day and a time, think about this, where everything is extreme. We even have what's called extreme sports now. Ordinary has become a negative word with negative connotations. If someone walked up to you and said, man, you're just so ordinary. Uh, You might take that as a compliment, but there's a chance you might not too, right? Ordinary has become this word that means you are less, not more. If you're ordinary, you don't measure up. If you're ordinary, you're certainly not extreme, are you? I mean, we want extreme experiences. We want extreme knowledge. We want extreme this, extreme that, and we want it now. We want God to extremely streamline his transformation process because I'm tired of waiting. God, can't you just do this? 
can we just get through this? We live in a day and an age where everything is getting faster and faster and faster. And we automatically begin to think God must work in the same way. Otherwise, he's not keeping up with technology, right? When in reality, it's just the opposite. Technology is struggling to keep up with God. And and it will never do it. So we're called to walk in this truth. And we need to know that God uses ordinary means to achieve his purpose. Nobody wants to be ordinary anymore. We have a culture, the church included, especially the church, that wants to be known as anything but ordinary. And unless we become bigger and better, more than ordinary, we'll be left out, will not be seen as significant or cool or relevant. This unfortunately has become the mentality of our culture in and outside the church. Pretty ordinary service. Not many bells and whistles. Just a guy up here talking to you. Just straight out of the Bible. If you're not careful, it'll become boring. If you're not careful, it just won't excite you. But here's the thing. What should be exciting to you is not the guy talking to you but what he's talking about, what he's talking from, what he's pointing you to. Because the excitement was never meant to be here or here or there. The excitement, what is extraordinary, what is extreme, is God and his grace and his salvation. That's what should excite us. That's what should drive us. That's what should motivate us. That's what we should be looking to. That's what we should be standing in awe of. That's what we should be in utter disbelief concerning. Who God is. His salvation. What He has done in creating me and bringing me into this world and putting me where I am and allowing me to have life. And allowing me to know him. We come to that fullness. As we choose to walk. Worthy. Of the faith. We come to this fullness. As God uses. Very ordinary things. To bring about our transformation. So it's time that we embrace what is ordinary according to the scripture. It's time to return to the reality of who God is and how God works. It's time to leave myth and deception behind and embrace once again the timeless truths of God and his revealed word. That we would look to something as simple as the Bible to lead us and to guide us that we wouldn't pray that God would give us some dream or some vision or some extreme experience, but we would just very simply and very ordinarily just open our Bible and begin to read the inspired Word of God, trusting that the Holy Spirit on the inside of me is going to illuminate that Word and reveal to me what needs to be revealed. Because God knows what needs to be revealed to me. But it sounds so ordinary, it sounds so boring I just, I, I just need something more. No. You need something very ordinary. You don't need anything more. You need Jesus. And Jesus has chosen to reveal himself to you through this word right here. This is what you need.
This is all you need. Everything else can supplement, can, can, you know, it's all fun. And, but when it's all said and done, this is what we need right here. And the God that's revealed to us in this book. Now to do that, it will take courage. It'll go against the flow of our culture. It'll go against the flow of what has come to define much of, of the church and modern Christianity. Because we've done everything from McDonald's to Starbucks to Subway to roller coasters on stage. I went to a conference one time. They had a whole roller coaster up on the stage. And they did that like every week. They had all kinds of things. I've seen preachers bring tanks onto their platforms because it's so cool. I mean, who doesn't want to go to church and see a tank, right? But we keep making it bigger and bigger and bigger, and one day the balloon's going to pop. And what are we going to be left with? And if Jesus, listen to me, church, if Jesus Christ won't draw you through those doors, then don't bother coming for a tank or a roller coaster or a clown or a three-ring circus. Because if Jesus is not sufficient for us, then nothing else will be. Because nothing can save you except Jesus. No one can save you except Jesus. And Jesus was more ordinary in his humanity than you will ever imagine. The Bible says he was so not beautiful that no one even wanted to look upon him. There was nothing lovely about him to behold. Yet we see Hollywood paint these pictures of this beautiful Jesus who just is the But yet the Bible says that's not who he looked like in his humanity, which I think is pretty consistent with how God brought him into this earth anyways. I mean, come on, the king of all kings, the ruler of the world, laid in a manger? And we want to paint some mythical picture of who Jesus was in his humanity? No, Let the scripture paint for you who Jesus is. Let the Holy Spirit on the inside of you illuminate and open your blind eyes and reveal who he is because there is nothing within humanity that can accurately portray the glory of God. And if we as the church, and I mean Christ fellowship, as well as the greater church, if we as the church don't, figure out that we better return to the ordinary, that we better stop chasing the extreme and looking for experiences and all of these things. And I'm not saying that that we do this, though we used to do it. This is what we were about as a church. It got about as extreme in this place as you can imagine. And the measure of our spirituality was how extreme we can make it. You know what all that you know what all that extreme behavior did? It just blew people up like a balloon and they eventually popped. And you know what happens when a balloon gets real big and it pops? It just and then it flies off somewhere and you don't know where it landed pretty much what happened to a lot of people they just got blown up like big balloons they popped and then they flew off somewhere and who knows except God where they landed but the Bible says that hope is the anchor of the soul that Jesus is the rock of our salvation I don't know if you've ever dealt with rocks and anchors but we talk about the rock of our salvation we're talking about the foundation stone Those things don't fly off. Those things don't just roll away and disappear. An anchor is dropped into the ocean to hold a ship in place. Christ is our anchor. He's our foundation stone. If you're anchored to him, if you're built on him, you're not going to blow away. You're not going to float away. You're not going to be driven away. You're going to stand firm even in the midst of the storm. 
So it'll take courage because this is totally and completely against the flow of the culture that we live in. I want to read a quote to you from John MacArthur from a sermon he had July 27, 2014. I thought this was a really, really good quote. It's kind of a long one, so bear with me. John MacArthur says in his sermon, A week or so ago, I picked up a copy of Table Talk, the monthly devotional magazine that's produced by our friends at Ligonier Ministry. And the theme was ordinary. There was a wonderful article by our friend Michael Horton called The Ordinary Christian Life. In that article, Michael Horton says this, Radical, epic, revolutionary, transformative, impactful, life-changing, extreme, awesome, emergent, alternative, innovative, on the edge, explosive, breakthrough, whole new level. And then he asks, what, whatever happened to ordinary? Whatever happened to ordinary, he says. Ordinary has to be one of the loneliest words in the evangelical church vocabulary. There is this constant call for more experiences that are highly emotional, radical, edgy, relevant, trendy. One other writer says, there seems to be a growing weariness with the cult of extraordinariness. I read an article this week written by an evangelical Christian who said, there is beginning to emerge a longing in the lives of 20 and 30 year olds for real church. They're worn out on the extremes. Where does all this come from? Well, the original fountain for this is not the culture. Listen to me, church. This is a culture of extremes, but that's not the original fountain for this. Though all these things are part of the culture, in an, in an effort to be extreme and edgy and impactful and relevant, etc., 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 the most bizarre elements of the culture are imported into the church. But the origin really goes back to American revivalism and goes back to Charles Finney in 1792 through 17, 1875, that's, that's the lifespan of Finney. It was Finney who decided that religion, to be valid, had to have some kind of high impact, high energy, emotional element. It was about methods and feelings and experiences, sentiment, sentimentalism. And it all trumped sound doctrine and theology, gradual growth by the normal, ordinary means of grace, prayer, the study of the word, fellowship, was growth for a radical experience, the anxious church, the anxious bench. And there was introduced into the evangelical world a restlessness of those looking for something extreme. Church, simply living out a form of that today, the church has become mired in relentless impatience and selfishness. And by the way, that is characteristic of childishness the church is an adolescent wanting to be indulged and entertained the church is largely superficial and immature and experiences are designed for impatient selfish shallow adolescence the god-ordained ordinary pattern of slow faithful thoughtful study and absorption of the word of God and slow, steady growth in grace and in the knowledge of Christ in the midst of a faithful congregation is far too ordinary for the salesman of adolescent extreme radical experience. There seems to be an endless supply of adolescents to entertain, ready to be fooled. I'm not saying God is ordinary. God is not ordinary. But God works through ordinary means. Ordinary people in ordinary churches doing very ordinary things. God uses real language and ordinary folks as his instruments to move his ordinary church to high impact in the world. 
simply stated, Jesus, God incarnate, stayed nine months in his mother's womb and was born in an ordinary way, in an ordinary place, and grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man in an ordinary way. The Puritans used to talk about the means of grace, and they were ordinary means. People today are like adolescents chasing a wild experience. And as I said, there's no end of places willing to offer it. I don't think it satisfies God's true people. I don't think that they can endure it for very long. I hope. God is certainly not ordinary, but he certainly uses ordinary means. He calls us to grow up to maturity. He uses that same ordinary means to make for the growth and the maturity of us and our children. And those ordinary means include time. Lots of it. God in his time, in his ordinary way, through his ordinary means of grace, is growing his body And that means he is growing you. He is growing us up in all things into him for his glory. When you come and you receive the word, you have to choose what you're going to do with that. When you come, you have to choose whether you're going to receive or whether you're not going to receive. When you receive, you're going to have to choose what you're going to do with it when you leave here or what you're not going to do with it when you leave here. Every day, all of us have to choose whether we're going to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. That means when we go out and we live our very ordinary lives, we have to choose how we're going to walk when we come upon extraordinary situations and circumstances to our life, we have to choose how we're going to walk. Whether we're going to react to our circumstance or whether we're going to respond to God in faith and demonstrate and manifest for all to see the fullness of Christ. Or at least that we recognize that we have fallen short of that fullness, but I am still a work in progress. And God is in the business of and doing the work of transformation in each one of our lives. And he does that in a very ordinary way every day. Amen? Let's all stand. Paul writes that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Father in heaven, We ask that you would, by the power of your Spirit, grow us, change us, transform us. Give us the grace, God, to see the beauty in the ordinary. Give us the grace to see and to know the power that you work through ordinary means. Deliver us from our impulses and our emotions and our flesh that wants the extreme, the immediate. Teach us how to be content in whatever state that we are in. Trusting that in seen and unseen, in known and unknown, in very obvious and in very obscure ways, you are working by your Spirit to bring about our transformation, conforming us to the image of your Son. 
Father, I pray that we would be challenged to resist the extreme and to embrace the ordinary. And that we would do so seeking your glory in all things, trusting you in all things, knowing that you have promised that you will complete the work you have begun in us in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this. We give you honor. We give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.